the sleep out of me. I'm looking to toss it and fill up the craft that's going to, you know, provide me what I need in a moment. And I promise you, my thought was not, thank you, Lord, that I have clean water. And I had seen the video already that you saw this morning, contrasting the, the clean water that somebody has that gives it air versus what somebody else has to live with and deal with. shoot much harder than their 
folks up here. And so we took them apart, put new screens in them, and this is how in Nerfville we were. And this is now in our basement. Well, over the summer, we had some visitors. My niece, her husband, and their, their kids, our great nephews, and uh, one great niece. And the oldest boy is about eight years old. And he went down in the basement, and he opened up this toy chest. And he just thought he had died of it. And this was a thing. He started pulling these guns out. He just could not believe it. He wanted to have a Nerf gun war. And, of course, I was really good at Nerf gun wars. And so... And absolutely. So we began to get the, the artillery out and you know, pick our weapons of choice. And, and he said, there's not enough bullets. There's 50 bullets here. And so I showed him the, the trash bag that was next to this very large chest of artillery. And the trash bag was a big laundry bag. And it was filled to the rim with bullets. And he just, his eyes got big. And he said, let's play, you know. And so we did. Now, here's the advantage I bring. I'm a 52-year-old man playing a Nerf gun war, right? I have unlimited patience. I can wait in an hour. And this, of course, gives me a great advantage because he's anxious to get the war on. So we set up the basement. We had blinds up. We had no places to hide. All these kinds of things going on. Nobody else was around to get in the way. And so one-on-one Nerf gun war began. And we were, I knew, around the wall from each other in a certain movement. And I had to drop on it really good. And it was going to be embarrassing for him, and uh, it was going to be the best part of my day. And so we came around the corner, and he shot me, right? And uh, his nerf gun bullet hit me right square on the pupil right in the corner. I wish I had words to describe the pain that I felt. It dropped me to the floor. He learned some new words, and this was a, a moment for me. I, I, I sat up on the carpet, and my eyes just watering, just, just pouring water out. Some of it, I confess, were tears, but a lot of it was just my eyes just watering. And he felt just horrible, which I thought was quite appropriate, really, for him to feel this way. And, and it just hurt, hurts like that. So I laid down. And obviously, game over, right? I mean, he won. I told him, you're going to shoot the king, you're going to kill him. And he did. He did. He killed the king. So, there I am, laying on the couch. I'm thinking, I'm just giving him that. Oh, I saw it. Still, I've got words, hurting words. Every time I tried to even look at anything, it just oh, just so utterly, unbelievably painful. Went to bed, still not better. Woke up in the morning, even worse. So, I found myself in the waiting room of the optometrist. She had to sign in. I can't even see. I've got no depth protection. I try to sign in. I'm waiting. And of course, I want an answer about this pain. This wasn't the first time I had some significant amount of pain. When I was in college, me and some buddies helped do some uh, volunteer firefighting in the hills of eastern Kentucky. And in the middle of that, I found myself with two scratched corneas. Unbelievable. I myself the optometrist, 20 years old, and say, yep, your coins are scratched. They put some salve over my eyes, a couple, you know, uh, cotton balls, and then tape over both of my eyes. So I wander around three days like a blind man, right? This is the pain that I felt. So now I'm walking into the optometrist's office, 52-year-old man, trying to figure out what's up with my eyes. So she, optometrist, she turned off the lights, and she put a drop of morphine 
in my heart. And this felt amazing. The pain went away immediately. And she rocked a little bit of the eye in my eye. And, you know, a black light over it, moved my eyeball for a little mechanism, and said, Oh my goodness, not what you want to hear yet, but you said it right. Your cornea scratch, and every time you close your eye, it makes it worse. And I said, Well, that morphine felt pretty good. Just send me home with that. And she said, We can't. We'll scratch your eye out, and you won't even know it. In other words, what was she saying? Well, you need to feel the pain. You need to protect your eye. You can't just numb it. Oh, I just wanted to numb it. So she took a little plastic towel pack. Opened up my eye, never looked like that. It's green glasses on the bench. She placed it over my cornea. And the pain didn't all go away, but mostly went away. And it worked just like a bandage. I didn't let my pregnancy know that all the pain had gone away. I needed him in a place of guilt and remorse. But she stayed in for the rest of the trip, which was good. Okay, I didn't let you do it. I do remember sitting in the waiting room wanting. Answer. It seems like when you're in the waiting room and you're desiring to know something on the other side of the door, that it's a safe place or, or maybe at worst a, a neutral place. But you need to know this waiting rooms are not safe places, they're not neutral places. I mean, true, you believe you're there for some other reason other than the waiting. You believe you're there to get the wisdom from the doctor or the answer from this person or to hear about the interview or whatever else that you're waiting for, but it is actually a very dangerous place. And we find ourselves doing things in this place, this waiting room, that are harmful or hurtful, maybe even lead us down paths that we shouldn't go down. Here's what happens when I'm in a waiting room, whenever I'm there, whether I'm there for me or I'm there for you. I look around and I begin to maybe do this, compare, especially if I'm at the urgent care. So I look over at my mom, more soft than she is, look at me before her. Oh, thank goodness, I'm not like him. Oh, I feel like probably I would be much better than he would be. And I begin to compare, and I find myself on this curve, find myself where chronic complaints of sickness and illness or debilitating circumstances were in my pit and all of that. Not only that, I find myself distracted. First time I learned about the Kardashians in the waiting room. Right? I picked up the People magazine, and I'm reading about this family, and I have no idea what's going on. Then weeks later, Don and I are watching the People versus OJ. And the lawyer, of course, on the scene was Mr. Kardashian. And I said to Don, so this is why he's famous? He's married to her and all these daughters? And Don said, no, no, Phil, it's the other way around. Okay, got it. And none of it still makes any sense to me at all. But it's a great thing to think about while I'm waiting to get news or try to figure out what's next or whether or not this sprain in my foot is actually a break. We find ourselves in the waiting room, and if you're in the waiting room now, maybe not the literal one, but the metaphorical one. If you're finding yourself not sure about what's next, if you're wondering how long the circumstances that you're in are going to last or how long you're going to have to deal with these circumstances, and be careful because you can start to think that the reason you're there is for what's going to happen next. The reason you're there is for the news you're about to get. 
when the reason you're there is just so you can endure to get to the next season. And who didn't? What did great theologian John Lennon once say? He said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. So I believe that's at least in part the waiting room. These verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's how it starts it. He says this. Say it with me. I don't want you. How many of you are forgetful? Just see your hands. How many of you this week hunted for your phone while you were on your phone? Anybody? I am forgetful. You are forgetful. Jesus said when he was with his disciples the last night of his life, do this to remember me. All throughout the Old Testament, God remembers and he moves in redemptive ways. Paul says as he begins this chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to forget. Not just because you're forgetful, but what he's about to remind us of is so critically important. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the what? In the wilderness long ago. So Paul's referring to a season of life and the people of Israel, the Hebrew nation, God's called and chosen people, and didn't last the five minutes you spent in your waiting room, or the two weeks that you spent waiting for an answer for some tests, or the four years you spent in high school, or in the sense, waiting for college, the time that they spent in the wilderness was a little bit longer than you remember how long. Forty years. It all begins in Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abraham, and God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all people through you, and whoever blesses you, I will bless them, and I'm going to use you and your family, God says in so many words, to bring about the redemption of the world. This is God's promise to Abraham, which was crazy because Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids, and they were old. God's promises seem unusual and sometimes impossible. And even after this promise came, they still had to wait. But God followed through. And the story of Genesis, at least most of Genesis, is the story of Abraham's life, the life of his kids. Abraham, Isaac, grandkids, Jacob, great-grandkids, and Joseph. And how God begins to build a nation through these people. This would become the Jewish people, the Hebrews. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, Joseph is left for dead and terribly mistreated by his brothers. But believing in God is always with him. He remained faithful. He finds himself in Egypt. And of course, eventually the whole family would find themselves in Egypt because of the famine back home. And in provision, God leads them to this place. But generations later, they no longer have positions of prominence or leadership or importance. They find themselves enslaved by the Egyptian people under the thumb of Pharaoh. God raises up a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery and take them to the land that was promised to Abraham from the very beginning. So Moses leads them out of the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. He leads them out through the Red Sea and they find themselves in the wilderness, in the desert. God rescued them. No longer are they living like a servitude. No longer do they have to leave all their choices up to their masters. They're going to cruel treatment in the long work days that Pharaoh would demand. Now they are a free people. 
those issues of critical importance. But for most of our lives, the circumstances are not the issue. Here's what happens as the children of Israel begin to wake. Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was a long time and coming down from the mountain, what mountain was it? Mount Sinai. How long had they been on the other side of the, the great Red Sea that had parted for them? Oh, I don't know, but maybe a few weeks. In fact, their waiting had just begun, and they found themselves itchy and twitchy and ready to do something to take matters into their own hands. So long? How long did they have to wait? We are so quick to become impatient. The journey out of slavery to the promised land wasn't supposed to be as long as it was. It just wasn't. In fact, if you wanted to walk from where they walked in Egypt to the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey, the promised land that God had promised, and you kept a fairly steady pace and you walked every day, you took a good rest. You know how long it would take you to get there? How long it would take you to make this journey? About two weeks. Yet it took Israel 40 years. I don't know how long it'll be in the circumstances that you're in, but it may be as long as God needs to help us understand what he is really up to. The waiting had just begun. Next week, we'll dig into what happened when they waited and the catastrophe that occurred and why it's so critical for us to be warned by Paul's words and what happened in Numbers and Exodus. The question you ought to wrestle with this week is this one. What are you waiting for? What is it that you're waiting for right now? You're waiting for the, the next stage of life? Some of you are waiting for retirement. This idyllic moment where you believe that finally you'll get to be in charge of your life, right? Then you talk to somebody who's tried it, and you realize, oh, it's a mirage, isn't it? Waiting for the next stage for your kids. I can't tell you how many times, John, I wished for this next stage. We wished that they were out of diapers, and, and we were really disappointed that all this stuff is now out in the open room. We wished that they learned how to walk, and then we wished that they were confined to their blankets. And then we wished that they would learn how to talk, and then we just wished that they would shut up. And then all of these stages, we find ourselves wishing through them without understanding that the stage that we were in was the very thing that God had in mind for us and them to learn and to walk from the first service of Pastor Dan at our church, who was in this stage with his boy, youngest, his youngest boy, sitting in this section. And I was in the back, the boy was facing me. And the boy not facing the screens, I'm not sure he's old enough to read, knew all of the words to every song that he sang. He just sang right along with Josh. And I watched in amazement. As the dad began to walk out and hear the service, I grabbed him and said, how does your son know all the words? He said he doesn't. And during worship, I say the words before we sing them. And then he sings them with that you're not willing to rush past the moment that you're in. 
are you waiting for? When you find yourself hoping for next on the other side of the door, are you waiting to get through high school because that's when real life begins, college? Are you waiting for a relationship that you've worked on so diligently to improve that is showing no hope of getting any better? While you're waiting, God is up to something very unique. In fact, here's the truth. When you find yourself in a metaphorical waiting room, there are things that God will only do in that space. Hey, come on. Once you have an answer, you're on to the next deal. Once you know where you're headed, where the corner is, or where the hill is, or it's downhill, whatever it is, you already know then what's next. But before you know what's next, you're listening in a very different and unique way. So you're waiting for the next job, the next deal, the next bit of good news, and some of you are bracing yourself for the next bit of bad news. While you're waiting, God wants you to wrestle with a few important questions. One is, do you trust me? Do you trust me? This is the very essence, the currency that we operate with God in, is trust. Believing and knowing that he's a good God, that he wants what's best for us, that he is with us in his promises, that he will never leave us. He wants to know where your hope is. Is your hope in the next deal, the next gig, the next payoff, the next commission check? Where's your hope? And why is your hope there? Like the scriptures say, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Do you trust me? Where's your hope? Here's the promise of scripture. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said. For those who wait, what's it say next? There's no virtuous endeavor to just waiting. No. You might know the little patience, but it's all in how you wait and what you're waiting on. Those who wait, what? On the Lord. Do you trust me? Where's your hope? What happens when you wait like that? What happens when you decide, oh, I'm going to wait, or I'm like, I don't know when the doors are open. I don't know when they're going to call my name. I don't even know what the answer is going to be. But here's what I'm going to do. I know where my trust belongs. I know where my hope belongs. Those who wait on the Lord, all of their strength is renewed. Would you like a little bit of that to get through the journey you're on? A bit of renewed strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What are you waiting for? Again, next week, we'll deal with whatever happens when they're Just name it. What is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're longing for? What what thing do you need to have happen next? To be happy or to be content or to feel secure? What are you waiting for? What is it? Just name it before God. 
be specific. Your relationship with God is a built-up being made. Be specific. Lord, we confess that we don't do well in, in waiting rooms. Real ones are metaphorical ones. Lord, we recognize that you have brought us out of slavery. That we are no longer bearing the guilt of our sin. That we are no longer under the dominion or the power of sin. We know that that doesn't mean we don't sin and mess up. We just recognize that we can choose to follow you, listen to your spirit, walk in good ways. We also recognize, Lord, that we are heirs of something that is yet to come. And that the new heaven and the new earth has not been fully realized. So we find ourselves in between. And we're kind of frustrated. At times we're very angry. We want things to be different. We want a different outcome, different result. Some of us want a different life, or a different relationship, or a different career, different bank account. So, Lord, we ask that in, in this space in between, that we would have hearts that are open to you. So, we receive the warnings from scripture from Paul in the Old Testament Numbers Exodus we want to learn from our Jewish ancestors and friends what they experienced so help us to wrestle with these questions that are thoughtful that can only be answered in the middle of good deep conversations with uh, close friends and thoughtful reflection on this and dine with you alone. Where is our trust? And where is our hope? And Lord, for anyone in this place and listening that is dealing with circumstances that need to be changed, a relationship that should be set aside. Somebody finds himself in a dangerous circumstance. We ask that you give them the courage and the wisdom to ask for help. And if they would know that this is a safe place to do that. So Lord, just right now, would you guide us to do this as we wrestle, as we seek you? Turn us into people who know how to work. 